All right, tonight we're going to talk about Abraham. And uh, just right out of the gate, Hunter and I talked about this. And uh, I thought it would be a good idea to say, I know that his name was Abram at first, and I know that God changed it, and I'm just going to say Abraham all night long so I don't try to keep him straight and go back and forth. So I know that he, he started off as Abram. We're just going to roll with Abraham tonight. Uh, and we're going to start off with uh, an illustration that maybe has never been used before in relationship to Abraham. And I'm going to talk to you about a guy named Charles Manson. Charles Manson. There you go. You didn't see that one coming, did you? It's not what you expected. Uh, One of the most infamous criminals of the 20th century. Um, Technically, no evidence that he himself murdered anyone. Um, Although most people think that he was involved at some point. Many of the murders attributed to him were carried out by his followers, and he talked them into it or put them up to it or manipulated them into it or whatever you want to say. Um, But in the early 70s, he was convicted of multiple counts of murder. And originally, in the state of California, he was sentenced to the death penalty. And almost immediately after his conviction, the state of Florida ruled, or the state of California, excuse me, ruled that the death penalty was unconstitutional, that they weren't going to carry out the death penalty. And so his sentence was changed to life in prison with the possibility of parole. And he's had several parole hearings, or he, I should say he had several parole hearings and obviously never received parole. Uh, in 2017, he passed away of natural causes at the age of 83. And he lived a very strange life. Um, it's It's... I don't know if interesting is the right word. It's fascinating to go back and to read about his upbringing and some of the things that were against him in his early years and to read about this little group of people that he put together and some call it a cult and some think it wasn't anything close to that. Uh, I listened to an interview this week of a man who spent multiple years in prison with Charles Manson and he got out and wrote a book. And uh, this was an an old interview with this guy from decades back. And he wrote the book to say, I've spent more time with this guy than just about anyone else. And I'm telling you, he's no genius mastermind criminal. He's just a loser bum and drug slinger who murdered a bunch of people over drugs. And so anyways, you can slice that out any way you want to. Um, He lived a strange life. And when he died last year, uh, things predictably were strange. And the strange part is that there were multiple people who wanted his body after he passed away. And so you may have heard this story. Some of you uh, know what the the deal was with this. It's really really odd. I'll put some pictures up on the screen. And I'm going to move top left to top right and then bottom left to bottom right. Tell you a little bit about these people. Uh, First is Jason Freeman. Jason Freeman claimed to be Manson's grandson. And said that his grandmother was married to Charles Manson in 1955. And so he says he's got a connection and used to go visit Manson and had a relationship with him. And by all accounts was at the end of his life the closest quote unquote family member. At least in terms of relationships. So Jason wanted the body. Next is Michael Bruner. And I know that that's a picture of a lady over on the top right. It's because I don't 
I couldn't find a picture of Michael Bruner. He was raised by his grandparents, and that's his grandmother, Mary Bruner, up there. And Michael Bruner says that he has a baptismal certificate from Wisconsin that lists his parents as Mary Bruner and Charles Manson. And so Mary, who you see up in that picture on the top right, was one of Manson's early followers. And apparently there's some evidence that they had a kid together and that that kid was baptized in a church in Wisconsin. So you can take that for what it's worth. Next is Matthew Roberts. Matthew Roberts claims that his mother always told him that Charles Manson was his dad. He took a DNA test to prove it, and the DNA test came back and said, no, you are not related. So that didn't work out. And when the DNA test failed, then Matthew Roberts showed up with a will written in 2017, and he said, look, I have a will from 2017 that says I get the body. So you've got two people claiming to be uh, grandsons, and then you've got this guy that says uh, he was a son, but he really wasn't, but he has a will. And then last is Michael Channels. And uh, the guy on the bottom right is really interesting. He is a memorabilia dealer, and he became friends with Charles Manson 30 years ago. Not related, but according to Channels, he said, I wanted to meet the devil, and so I wanted to be friends with Uh, Charles Manson, and he also has a will written in 2002 that says he gets the body. So all these parties come forward and they say, he's mine, I want him, I want to take the body. And it took four months in uh, probate court to settle it all out and make a decision, and in the end they picked Jason Freeman, the guy up in the top left. He got the body, and he said he had plans to have a small family ceremony Uh, cremate him and scatter his ashes. So what in the world does that have to do with Abraham? This is what it has to do. I came across the story several months back about all these different people saying they had the rightful claim to his body. And when you think about Abraham, one of the most fascinating things about him is that when you look back through history, lots of different groups claim Abraham. Lots of different groups say he's ours. You don't get to claim him, we get to claim him. And that's certainly true of the three major monotheistic religions in the world. They all claim that they go back all the way to Abraham. Jews talk about Father Abraham. At Vacation Bible School, you sang the song, Father Abraham had many sons. I'm one of them and so are you, so let's praise the Lord. So Christians say Abraham is our guy. And Muslims go back to Ibrahim and they say Abraham, Ibrahim is our guy. It all started with him. All of these religions go back, and others, and claim their origin in Abraham. So it's not surprising that we would read this quote. This comes from James Boyce, and I put this on your notes. We'll start with this. With the exception of Jesus Christ, Abraham is probably the most important person in the Bible. Moses was a great lawgiver. He received the Ten Commandments and other laws from God on Sinai, and he delivered them to the people. Under God, he was instrumental in leading the nation out of its Egyptian bondage. Joshua was a great military leader. He guided the nation across the Jordan River to the conquest of Palestine. David was Israel's most brilliant king. He brought Israel to a position of great power in the Near East and expressed their deepest religious emotions in some of the best-loved psalms. David, or excuse me, Daniel was an outstanding statesman. Elijah was among the great prophets. Each of these, like many other prophets and leaders, was a giant. But each would have confessed in an instant 
that Abram or Abraham was his father in the faith. No one can understand the Old Testament without understanding Abraham. After an introduction like this, it comes as a shock to learn that the first thing to be said about Abram is that there was nothing in Abraham himself that commended him to God. Abraham came from a family that had apparently sunk to the level of worshiping idols rather than the true God. I agree with this statement at the top where he says, Abraham, other than Jesus, is the most important person in the Bible. And it's fascinating to stop and say, well, what did he do? What did he accomplish? We didn't write any books in the Bible. He wasn't recognized as a king. He didn't have, you know, all the accolades or the titles or the positions. And yet all of these great heroes in the Old Testament look back to Abraham as their father in the faith. So in Old Testament context, here's where he fits. He fits in what we call the patriarchs. In fact, Abraham would be the first of the patriarchs, being Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and then the 12 tribes. So we're right after the flood. We're right before the period of the Exodus, and we're talking about the beginning of of what Bible scholars call the patriarchs. Several texts I listed here. We're not going to go read these. Uh, I'll just mention some of these verses as we try to set the stage for where he lived and when he lived. Genesis 6, 5 says that the Lord God looked down on the children of man and he saw that the thoughts of their heart, the intentions of their heart were only evil continually. Right? This is after everything has sort of fallen into place, after Adam and Eve sin and their children begin to spread out and corruption is just rampant in the earth and the hearts of men and women are radically corrupted by sin. There's no part of the human heart left untouched by sin. It's all been corrupted. We read about the flood where God brings judgment on the world for their wickedness and God saves Noah and his family and you get through the flood and you think, okay, maybe things are going to be better. And one of the very first stories out of the gate is Noah, this man that God saved from the flood, gets drunk and his son laughs at him and there's a huge debacle and you realize, well, we're right where we left off. Things have not gotten any better whatsoever. The flood didn't fix any of those problems. And the Tower of Babel confirms that, that humanity is set in opposition against God. Then comes Genesis 11. And you can go back and look at Genesis 11 on your own. We're not going to spend time working through that. There's a genealogy that shows how we get from Noah up to Abraham. And there's some geographic details that tells you how Abraham's family got from where they started off in Babylonia all the way to what we would call the Promised Land. And I'll show you a couple of maps so you can see this. This is straight out of a Bible atlas, and it's just a map of the ancient Near East. And so on the bottom left, you can see Egypt. Up on the top left, you can see what we would call Turkey. And then you've got Iraq and Syria and Saudi Arabia and Iran and all those countries just right there in the middle. And the red circle is where Abraham's family started off in Ur of the Chaldees, meaning they were Babylonians. And they left that place and they traveled up to an area called Haran. That's the blue circle. And then the Lord called Abraham to leave Haran and to go down to Canaan or to the promised land. And I just put the circle on Jerusalem so you get the idea of the area. The next map I'll put up just shows you modern day countries so you can make sense of the same areas. So Abraham's family starts off in Kuwait or down in the 
the southeast corner of Iraq. They travel up to what we would call Syria or Turkey, right there on that border. Then he travels down to where we would recognize modern-day Israel in Jerusalem. So that gives you an idea of where the family started off and where where they moved to. Let's talk about his life story, Abraham's life story. Break it down into several stages and try to make sense of this. Stage number one is idolatry. Idolatry. And you can't miss the significance of this. If you go to the book of Joshua, the very end of Joshua, all the battles have been fought. Joshua is ready to go retire in the hill country. And he gets the people together for one last speech. And I just want you to see one of the things he says. Joshua chapter 24, verse 1 says that Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. And he summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, the officers of Israel. They presented themselves before God, and Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. And I gave him Isaac, and then we go to Jacob and his children, and the story goes on. But the, just the detail I want you to see is Joshua says, way back when God took these guys, they worshiped idols. They were idolaters. They worshiped statues. And this is kind of strange for us because we live in the United States, and just because you live in the United States, and even just because you live in the Bible Belt, doesn't mean we're all Christians, You may have Buddhists here, you may have Sikhs here, you may have Jews here, and we're used to that idea that people live in a place and there's religious diversity, there's pluralism of religious expression. I'm just telling you and reminding you, in ancient Babylon, there was no religious diversity. If you lived in ancient Babylon, you were Babylonian and you worshiped the gods of Babylon. There weren't churches on the corner or a mosque on this corner or a synagogue on that corner. There was one option. If that's where you lived and those were your people, you worshiped those gods. And you see that idea, right? When, uh, when Ruth leaves her family and she says, my people are going to be your people and your gods are going to be my gods. Like, I'm switching. Everything is a change. I'm leaving all of this and I'm going to all of this. And that was the idea. So Abraham grew up in what we would call Babylon and they were idolaters. They worshiped the gods and the goddesses of Babylon. Stage number two, we will call his calling. Calling. And I want to read a few verses here in Genesis 12. This is the very first story in the Bible about Abram or Abraham. Genesis 12, and let's read 1 to 9. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house. And if you make notes in your Bible and you like to, you know, study things and and diagram things a little bit, you can circle the word from your country, circle country, and then circle the word kindred, and then circle father's house. So you're going to leave your country, and you're going to leave your kindred, and you're going to leave your father's house. To, this is where you're going, a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to a place at Shechem, to the oak tree of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country to the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So a couple of interesting things here. God says, number one, you're going to leave your home, meaning the place you live. And you're also going to leave your people, your kindred. You're leaving the geographic area you're used to. You're leaving the people that you're used to. And you're going to leave your family, your father's house. That's a lot to ask for somebody right out of the gate. And sometimes we read these stories, especially of somebody like Abraham, and we just read through them so quick and we're so familiar with them, we don't ever slow down to think about how a request like that would have settled on a 75-year-old man. I need you to leave your town and the people who are like you and your family. Leave all that behind, put it in the rearview mirror, and I want you to go to a place that I am going to show you. I'll let you know when you get there, basically. You just take off and go. And remarkably, he goes. And God makes him these promises. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Right? You're leaving a nation. I'm going to make you into a nation. And he says, you're going to be a blessing for all the families of the earth. Right? I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing, and all the families on the earth are going to be blessed through you. And then he says a little bit further down uh, in verse 7, I'm going to give you land. Right? You've left a land, and I'm going to give you a land. So most of these things that God is asking of him, he's also telling him on the other side, I'm going to give you these things back. But I want you to leave these things, and I want you to go to the place that I'm going to show you, and this is what... I'm going to do for you. And so that's his calling. Next comes the covenant. The covenant. And we're not going to read these verses, but I do want to talk about them a little bit. God makes a covenant with Abraham. He comes back many years later. And again, that's a, a detail that's hard for us to take in. That many years pass in between some of these stories. This wasn't day one, day two, day three, day four for Abraham, and then it was all over. But we're talking about years going by. Starts when he's 75, God comes back many years later and he says, your offspring will be like the stars in the sky. And he says, I'm going to give you a land. He hasn't done any of these things yet, but he's making these promises again. And then there's this interesting covenant ceremony in chapter 15. And you got to know a little bit about the ancient world and how they made deals to understand what's happening here, right? 
Today, if you buy a piece of real estate, you go down to the abstract office and you sign the title and they sign the title and you sign 100 pieces of paper and they say, sign this, sign this, sign this, and you have no idea what you're signing. You just sign, 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 and your hand gets tired. And they say, congratulations, you're done. It's, it's a done deal. Well, they didn't do that in the ancient world. In the ancient world, they would have these covenant ceremonies. And one of the, the types of ceremonies they would have would involve taking animals, cutting these animals in half, laying the animals opposite each other with a little walkway down the middle. Party A to the transaction gets on one side. Party B gets on the other side. They walk into the middle and they shake or they fist bump or they hug or they do whatever they're going to do in the middle. And the idea is if you break the deal, if you break the covenant, this is what ought to happen to you. You ought to be cut in half and laid open on the ground. They take it very seriously. In this situation, God's ready to make a covenant with Abraham, and he tells him, get the animals, cut them in half, lay them open. That didn't, as strange as it sounds to you, it didn't sound strange to Abraham. He knew exactly what was going on. Okay, we're about to enter into an agreement. So he does it, and he lays them down. The birds come, and they try to eat the animals, and he chases the birds off. And he waits, and he waits, and he waits. And then at sundown, God shows up, and he basically knocks Abraham out on the other end. He just puts him out, the magic touch. And the Lord, in the form of this smoking pot and fire, makes his way all the way through the animals to the other side. They don't meet in the middle. This is not you do your part, I'll do my part. This is God saying to Abraham, you have nothing to do with this. I'm going to do it all. I don't need anything from you in this deal. I don't expect anything of you in this deal. I'm just coming to say to you, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a great nation. And you're going to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. There's no meat in the middle. It's God going all the way and making these promises to Abraham. It's an unconditional promise. Chapter 17. Again, we're not going to read this. But in 17, God shows up and he says to Abraham, I'm going to give you a sign of the covenant. Okay, what's the sign? Like a secret handshake or an earring I'm going to wear. And God says, no, the sign is going to be circumcision. And you can imagine how that would sound to an elderly man who had not been circumcised to say, is there a plan B? Can we come up with something else? And that's the sign that God picks. And without being crude, I want you to understand, it's not without meaning. It's not without significance. Because the promise to Abraham is that you are going to procreate. You're going to have kids. Lots of them. And I'm going to give you a sign that's a picture of what happens in procreation. And you doing this is going to be a testimony to the fact that you believe I'm going to come through on this promise. Now, notice the order here because this is important when you get later in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. First, God comes to Abram, Abraham and he says, these are the promises. I'm giving them to you unconditionally. I don't need you to meet me halfway. I'm going to do it. He makes these promises. Then comes the sign. It's not that God said, look, if you carry out the sign, then I'll come through on the promises. God already said unconditionally, this is what I'm going to do for you. And then he gives him this sign of circumcision. 
These promises are really important. We've just seen it in the book of Exodus, right? All those times that God says, I should just go down and destroy these people. What did Moses say? Yeah, but what about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? You made promises to them, and they were unconditional promises. They weren't based on anything. They were just you saying, as sure as it could happen, I'm going to come through on my word. And so that's the stage we'll call covenant. Next comes children. Children. I gave you two verses here, or two passages. We're not going to read these. I just want to note that when we talked about the covenant, we talked about chapter 15 and 17. Now we're talking about children and we're throwing in chapter 16, which comes right in the middle. And chapter 16 is the the part of the story where Sarah comes and says, maybe God means to do this, not through me, but through my servant Hagar. We're going to come back to that in a little while. It was a bad plan, resulted in lots of conflict, lots of pain, but that's where Hagar comes into the story and that's where Ishmael comes into the story. Uh, Chapter 21, Sarah is pregnant. She gives birth to a son, and they name that son Isaac. So we said children, not just child, but children, because now Ishmael's in the story, and Isaac is also in the story. Next stage is testing. Testing. And this is a chapter that I want to read. Genesis 22. We're going to read through this story quickly. We're not going to spend as much time as we could spend here. We're going to talk about the sacrifice of Isaac. And just a quick show of hands before we read it. How many of you, when you think about Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac, how many of you, either because of something you've seen on TV or a movie, or something you've seen in a Sunday school class, or you've been taught, how many of you picture a grown man walking up the mountain to sacrifice his small child son. That's the image a lot of us have, is you got a grown man and a little boy walking up the mountain. How many of you, of you in your mind have this idea that Isaac got tied up on the top of the mountain and Abraham had the knife and he had it up and he was coming all the way down and then like right here, stop, right here. And it was like just inches away. Sometimes in, in movies or TV it gets presented that way and that... Obviously, you understand that adds to the drama and the, the tension of it. I just want to maybe scrub those two thoughts from your brain as we read through this. Look at Genesis 22 1. It says, After these things, after these things, and I want to mention two things about that phrase, after these things. First of all, you've got to understand that this test comes all the way at the end of Abraham's life. You understand that? God did not show up in Genesis 12 when Abraham knew nothing about the Lord and asked him to do something like this. But this comes after decades and decades of decades of following after the Lord, listening to the Lord, learning about the Lord, having a relationship with the Lord, praying to the Lord, trusting in the Lord, following the Lord. This is like the final exam for Abraham. Right? This is not the benchmark testing. You know what a benchmark test is? Benchmark is you get the kids in school and you give them a test on day one to figure out how much they know. Right? It doesn't really matter how much they know. You're going to teach them. You just want to know where they're at. This isn't a benchmark test to figure out where Abraham's at. This is like the final exam at the end of everything. All his studies are over. 
And now God is giving him this final test. So after these things, God tested Abraham. And one last thought before we move on. That phrase, after these things, it's used elsewhere in the book of Genesis to refer to long periods of time. Not weeks or months, but years and years and years. And if you read what just came before it in chapter 21, what just came before it is the birth of Isaac. Isaac just shows up on the scene, and chapter 22 says, after these things, you can take that as a year or two or three, or you could take that as decades. And I'm going to suggest to you that what the text is saying is that this is not a grown man walking up with a five-year-old, but this is a grown man walking up with his grown son walking up this hill. That I don't think you have to read this story as Isaac being a little child, but that you can read it as Isaac being maybe 18, 19, 20, physically fully grown. Meaning if Isaac at any point wanted out of this deal, he could have taken his literal old man and pushed him down the hill and ran off. Going along with it means that Isaac trusts his dad and he trusts the Lord to do what is right. So the text says, after these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, take your son, your only son. Did he only have one son? No. But God says, your only son, Isaac, the one you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. So a couple of thoughts there. We're going to move quicker as we get further in the story. But when he says, your only son, Isaac, the one you love, it's almost like he's, if you take a mean view of God, you say he's just rubbing salt in the wound. Like he's just making it even more painful for him. But I don't think that's what God is doing at all. I think what God is doing in describing Isaac this way, he could have just said, hey, grab Isaac and go. Just take your son, your only son, Isaac, the one you love. And he's taking Abraham back to all the promises he made. Promises not to be fulfilled through Hagar, but through Sarah and through her son. And it's almost like he's reminding Abraham, Abraham, I'm about to ask you to do something hard, but I need you to remember my promises. That through Isaac, you're going to get a land, and you're going to be a nation, and you're going to have offspring, and you're going to be blessing to the whole world. Please do not forget my promises. He's asking Abraham to remember it. Go to Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, I and the boy. And some translations use the word boy, and you can go down to the footnote, at least in the ESV, and the ESV tells you the same word could be translated young man. So it kind of changes the way you read the story. Is he a boy or is he a young man? Take the boy, go over there, I will go over there and we'll worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm not trying to call my kids wimpy, but that's one reason I think Isaac was grown. 
Because if I think about my four, five, six, seven-year-olds carrying a load of wood up a mountain, I think they're going to make it about three steps. And then they're going to be whining and belly aching. And I'm sure they were tougher back then than they are today, but there you go. He's carrying the wood. He's carrying the load. Put it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. They're both together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And I'll just point out to you that verse 6 and verse 8 make a point to say that they are going together. And I think that's the author's way of telling you they're both in on this thing. It's not like little boy Isaac is being drug up the hill against his will, but they're both going together. They're both in on it. Verse 9, when they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So this is the period we would call his testing. And it's just a... It's a really short window in his life, right? Some of these other stages go on for long periods of time. This is one short window, but it's the final exam for Abraham to say, Do you trust me? And do you trust my promises? Not in a vacuum. Not, I just showed up and are you going to believe whatever I tell you? But based on all of our interaction together, everything you know about me, do you trust me to do what's right? And to his credit, Abraham passed this test. The, hot, the highlights of the story are pretty clear. Abraham trusts God. There's a substitute. And God is the one who provides the substitute. So we'll, we'll come back to some of that in a minute. Last, last stage is death. He dies. Sarah dies first. They bury Sarah. Abraham actually marries another woman. <clears throat> and they have children. And when he knows that he's about to die, he gives this wife and all of her children a bunch of gifts, and he sends them away, and he says, take a hike, and he, uh, he blesses them, and then he himself dies uh, and leaves the promises and his wealth to Isaac, and in the end, he lives 175 years. So that's his life. Now let's talk negatives and positives, and then we'll talk about how Abraham points us to Jesus. So here's the negative. Abraham was an idolater. We've already discussed that. He lied about his wife. He asked his wife to lie for him. And he put his wife in great jeopardy. He also participated in an immoral attempt to bring God's promises to pass. So he's an idolater. He lies about his wife. He asks Sarah to lie for him. He puts her in danger or jeopardy. 
And he participates in this immoral attempt to bring God's promises to pass. Flip over and look at chapter 16. We've mentioned the idolatry. Twice, I'll let you read these verses on your own, but twice he ends up in a foreign country, once in Egypt and once in Gerar. And he's so terrified that the men of those places are going to kill him to get his wife that he lies and says that she's really his sister and asks her to do the same thing and then basically stands by as men take her off into their household. And in both cases, the Lord protects Sarah despite Abraham, but that doesn't really reflect well on him. And the biblical authors, to be honest, they don't ever come out and say this was lousy, this was cowardly, this was terrible. But that's not how the biblical authors tell a story. You wouldn't expect them to do that. They simply tell you what happened, and you, from everything else you know about the Old Testament, read that story and you say, you know, I don't think that's how God designed it to work. That husbands lie about their wives and put them in danger and jeopardy so that they can save their own skin. I don't, I don't think that's the pattern that that God sets forth in the scriptures. And look what we read in Genesis 16. We'll just read two verses here. One and two. Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her... And this is the phrase I want you to see. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. This is not a knock on women. This is not a knock to say that wives should never speak to their husbands. This is just the biblical author telling you he just went along with her plan and he knew better. He just listened to her voice and he went along with it. And if you've started in the beginning of this book, it ought to remind you of Adam and Eve in the garden. When Eve takes the fruit and gives it to her husband and he just listens to her voice and takes it and eats it. Mindlessly going along with her rebellion. That's the same pattern you see here. Sarai says, maybe we should do it this way. And rather than say, you know, I don't know that that's the best idea. Or, well... I don't know that that's how God set up marriage to work in the first place. He just goes along with it, and he's part of this immoral attempt to bring God's promise to pass. So that's the negative. Here's the positive. Abraham was God's friend, and he was a man of obedient faith. Man of obedient faith. I'm going to let you read these verses. I just want to mention some of these keystone moments in his life that were really, really remarkable. God comes to him when he's 75 years old and he says, leave your home and go to the place that I'm going to show you. Leave your family, leave your father's house, leave everything you know behind. And he actually went. He actually listened to the Lord and he got up and he left. The Bible says in Genesis 15, he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's not a righteous man. But because of his faith in the Lord and his faith in his promises, he's counted as righteous. When he was 99 years old and he had no kids, 
and he'd been waiting on God to make good for his word for a quarter century. Remember, he left home when he was 75. He's 99 and he has no kids. God shows up and he says, I want you to change your name from Abram to Abraham. We don't speak Hebrew, so we say, what's the big deal? Abram means exalted father. So you can imagine the teasing that he heard as a man with no children, 99 years old, and his name is exalted father who has no children. God says, change your name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. So he's going to change his name, which means he's going to go to all his friends. He couldn't just get on Facebook and update his name and hope it caught on. But he's going to go to his friends and say, hey, I don't want you to call me Abram anymore. What do you want us to call you? I don't want to be the father or the exalted father. I want to be the father of multitudes. That's what I would like to be called from now on. And you can imagine the teasing and the joking and the laughing. Why in the world would you want to change your name to that? And he's got to explain himself. I think the Lord's going to come through on his word. I trust the Lord to come through and to do what he said he's going to do. Uh, He obeys his command about the sign of circumcision. Again, that's pretty remarkable in and of itself that God would tell a man to do that. And with no evidence that God had yet come through on his promise, he says, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to trust the Lord. We read about the sacrifice of Isaac. And the result of all that is that three times... Twice in the Old Testament, once in the New, Abraham is referred to as God's friend. He's God's friend. So he's a man of obedient faith. How does he point us to Jesus? Four ideas and we'll wrap it up. Number one, God's promise to Abraham or his promises to Abraham were ultimately fulfilled in Jesus the Christ or you could say Jesus the Messiah. Promise for blessing promise for all of these offspring and the one verse I want you to look at is Galatians 3 Galatians 3 if you want to make sense of what Genesis says about Abraham you got to make sense of what Paul says in Galatians and we're just going to read one little snippet of it Galatians 3 16 says the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So if you believe Paul, and I think all of us in this room would say, yeah, we should listen to Paul. Paul says those promises made to Abraham and to his offspring, they weren't just made to all his kids indiscriminately, but to one of his kids. One offspring. And the one offspring that those promises were given to was Abraham and Jesus. Which is the reason that the New Testament opens with the genealogy. And the first thing that genealogy says is, Jesus the Christ is the son of Abraham. He's the offspring. He's the one that all these promises were given to. Way back then, looking forward, Jesus is the one who fulfills those promises. Blessing comes to the whole world through Abraham because of Jesus. Number two. Abraham deferred to Melchizedek, who was a type of Christ. When we voted on heroes, I put Melchizedek on the list, and I was really glad that he didn't make the cut. 
And uh, he was probably one that if you had voted on him, I would have rigged the election and come back and said, eh, sorry, he lost. Lots of things we could speculate about Melchizedek, but you go look at Hebrews 7 if you want to. Hebrews 7 says he is a picture or a type of Christ. And Abraham submits to him, tithes to him, gives this offering to him, and it's a picture uh, of Jesus way back there in the book of Genesis. So I'll let you dig through that on your own. Number three, Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day. This is John 8. And this is one of my favorite chapters in the whole New Testament, John 8. You go back and read it. It's really long. There's a lot of interesting dialogue if you can make your way through it. Jesus is basically arguing with the Pharisees. They're challenging him. They're confronting him. And Jesus is not backing down at all. And it gets really heated. And the Pharisees get so mad at Jesus. At one point they say to him, we know that you were born of sexual immorality and that you're a Samaritan. What they're saying is, we know that your mother was pregnant before she got married, and we think she was pregnant because of some Gentile guy, which makes you a half-breed. So the Pharisees start telling mama jokes to Jesus, bringing his mother into it. I mean, these are fighting words. This is stuff that would make your blood boil if somebody said it to you. We know you're born of sexual immorality. At least we're not born of sexual immorality. And we know you're a Samaritan and you're probably demon-possessed. And Jesus, Mr. Meek and Mild Jesus, looks him in the eyeball and says, Oh, yeah? You're children of the devil. Your father is Satan. And you do exactly what he does. And they say, no, 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 we're children of Abraham. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Your father's the devil who's been sinning from the beginning, and you're exactly like him. You take after your dad. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And they're back and forth, and they're fighting, and they're arguing. And the whole thing ends with this. Jesus looks at these men who trusted that they were descendants of Abraham, and he says, look, you have nothing to do with Abraham. Let me tell you about Abraham. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. He saw my day and he rejoiced. John 8, you read it, the last verse, verse 59. And I think what Jesus is saying is, look, Abraham is with the Lord right now. He's been up there the last several thousand years. And he understood what was going to happen when I came down here. And he saw the incarnation, and he saw this plan of redemption begin to unfold. He saw me coming down as the Son of Man to seek and save what was lost, and he rejoiced to see it. And if you were anything like Abraham, you would rejoice just like he did. But you're not. You're children of the devil. So you go back and read John 8. It's a fascinating story. The point is, Abraham himself rejoiced to see Jesus' day. Last idea. Abraham's the ultimate example of justification by faith. And we'll read just a couple of verses from John 4. We'll wrap it up. Excuse me, Romans 4. Romans 4, verse 9. We'll jump in the middle here. Paul says, is the blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted 
to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but it was before he was circumcised. So if you want to know what Paul's talking about, you just dial it back to Genesis and you say, Genesis 15, Abraham believes the Lord and it's counted to him as righteousness. Two chapters later, then comes circumcision. First, he's justified by faith. He's made right with God through faith. Then later comes circumcision. So Paul's talking to these people who say, you got to be circumcised. you got to keep the law. you got to do all these things. And he says, whoa, 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 dial it all the way back to Abraham, the guy that everybody claims. Dial it all the way back to Abraham. How was he saved? Oh, Father Abraham. It wasn't because he was circumcised. He was justified long before he was ever circumcised. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had. He already had it by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make them the father of the circumcised. We're not merely circumcised, but walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So look, when we started off, we all kind of joked. Tony joked, and we joked about the old VBS song, Father Abraham, and many sons, many, you, know, you know the song. You realize, we just talked about Jesus fighting with the Jews. If you could go back in time as a Gentile and sing that song in front of a bunch of Pharisees, they'd pick up stones to stone you on the spot. I mean, they would be totally outraged, smoke coming out of their ears. You are not a descendant of Abraham. You don't get to sing that song. And Paul says, of course you get to sing that song. Abraham is the father of the uncircumcised, of those who have faith in Jesus. And he's the father of the circumcised, those who receive this sign of the seal and sign of the covenant. And so we conclude by saying it is good and right, as cheesy as the song is, to sing, Father Abraham had many sons, I'm one of them, and so are you, even though we're not Jews, we're Gentiles, because he is the father of those who believe and those who walk according to his faith. So that's Abraham, and we come down and we say, you know, all these different groups claim him, but the New Testament, the scriptures from old to new are telling us that he is the father of those who believe. He is connected with those who have faith in God and faith in his promises and faith in what he's done for his people through Jesus. So there's Abraham.